Welcome to any of our guests and to those watching online on the internet. My name is Swami Pranava and this is Swami Parvati. I got that, it's good. <laughs> this week's topic from Rays of the One Light uh, with commentaries on the Bible and the Bhagavad Gita is Did God create the universe or become it? Truth is one and eternal. Realize oneness with it in your deathless self within. The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. The Gospel of St. John in chapter 1 contains a passage that explains the essential truth that creation is a process of becoming. The universe is not separate from God the Creator, but a part of Him, even as our own dream creations during sleep are figments of our consciousness. God's is the life. God's the reality. Not a melody could be composed, not a poem written, were the melody and the poem not already there, simply waiting to be expressed. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Ego-directed desire is like static, it distorts the radioed messages of the infinite. But the pristine impulse from the divine, undistorted by limitation and delusion, is the life that gives rise to all that is. As the seventh chapter of the Bhagavad Gita states, I am the fluidity of water. I am the silver light of the moon and the golden light of the sun. I am the Om chanted in all the Vedas, the cosmic sound moving as if soundlessly through the ether. I am the manliness of men. I am the good sweet smell of the moist earth. I am the luminescence of fire, the sustaining life of all living creatures. I am self-offering in those who would expand their little lives into cosmic life. O Arjuna, know me as the eternal seed of all creatures. In the perceptive, I am their perception. In the great, I am their greatness. In the glorious, it is I who am their glory. Thus, through Holy Scripture, God has spoken to mankind. So, welcome to Sunday service as well from myself. Um, I'll read from Whispers from Eternity. And this is a little different. This is from the uh, very first section of Whispers called Watching the Cosmic Motion Picture of Life. Countless motion pictures are displayed daily on our mental screens. The comic movies we find delightful, the educational ones informative, and also, if we ponder that information more deeply, instructive. Sensational events in our lives help to keep us awake and ready. Sad movies lead us slowly by the hand to the portals of reflection on passing, which we recognize that all fulfillments in life are really a mixed bag of success and disappointments. And the inspiring movies lead us into the garden of higher reflection, where we learn to hope for better things 
in life than endlessly pulling up the weeds of troubles in hopes of making life trouble-free. The hope that dawns on us is that there may be lofty regions of consciousness where not only rest but enduring love and bliss are possible. So this topic is a very interesting one and I find that particular passage in the Bhagavad Gita just beautiful, poetically beautiful. I am the fluidity of water, etc. And I think maybe toward the end of uh, what I'm going to talk about we'll do that as a little meditation because it's so very beautiful. And the Bhagavad Gita, for however esoteric it gets always is inviting us warmly to really understand. And if you read um, the same, this is from chapter 7, you can find it there, of the Gita itself. And if you read the commentary that Swami did on it, uh, it gets very esoteric, which I won't cover this morning. But um, anyway, but it just is always really inviting us to go deeper and deeper in our understanding and in our life with the divine. Um, I was thinking, whenever I have read this passage, I think about St. Francis, because it really is what he, the consciousness with which he uh, wrote the Canticle of the Creatures, which is very, very beautiful. And again, in 1200 is when this was written. We still were into Kali Yuga and not very far out of it yet, but he wrote this beautiful poem uh, that we sing. Swami put it to music, Swami Kriyananda. And uh, it's very wonderful. Uh, St. Francis also, we were fortunate enough to be living in Assisi, uh, Ananda Assisi, in 1989 and 90. And Swami Kriyananda came, and in the spring of 1990, we had a pilgrimage come from United States. All of the communities came, and it was a big group, and we went to many of the places sacred to St. Francis, not only in Assisi, but Laverna and uh, uh, Florence, Firenze. And uh, I remember walking the streets with Swami Kriyananda as we, he was, we were talking about what the life of St. Francis was about. And also, before that, he would give a class about St. Francis. And uh, it was very, very helpful because at the time that Francis came, the consciousness of people was very materialistic. And Francis, as Swami Kriyananda said, was probably the most exalted, the most uh, famous, and uh, just the highest evolved saint in all of Christendom. So he was, his consciousness was extremely uh, high and subtle. And so the things that he talked about kind of got translated down into what people could understand. And so the Canticle of the Creatures comes to be that, oh, Francis loved the sun and the moon and the stars, and isn't that nice? And, you know, I mean, most people, myself included, are not philosophically oriented, but if you just play that out a little bit, it's like, well, 
are you worshiping the sun and the moon and the stars? Are you what happened to God in all of that? But actually, Swami, when we were with him, he said, and he said it very strongly. He said, Saint Francis didn't love the birds. He loved God, and he saw God in everything. And that is like a 180-degree shift of how we view things, how we see things. Also, in the little story, uh, little story, it's actually a very famous, of what is true joy, he also corrected or took that understanding of that story deeper by saying, you know, when they were walking along, this was St. Francis and Brother Leo, walking through the snow and coming to one of the Franciscan monasteries and hoping to be welcomed in there, uh, St. Francis asked Brother Leo on the way, he said, So, Brother, Brother Leo, what is true joy? And Brother Leo put out several versions of what he thought true joy was if we did this and we did that. And, and Francis said, Well, not quite, not quite. And so finally, Brother Leo, I'm not remembering all the things that he said, obviously, but Brother Leo finally said, well, what is true joy then? You tell me. And Francis rolls out this scenario of, he said, well, true joy is if we arrive at the monastery and we pound on the door for them to let us in and they don't even answer the door right away. And then eventually someone comes and opens the door and says, who are you anyway? What are you doing pounding on this door? And not only that, this shuts the door and then they pound again and, and then they open the door the second time and beat them and toss them into the snow as though they never knew them and treat them extremely rudely. And Francis said, if in that time all during that time we maintain our inner joy there therein lies true joy so it's not and it kind of got translated over the years to well because we were beaten and we were fine with it but it isn't that it's more subtle than that it's that we have inner joy and if we can keep it no matter what happens outwardly then there is the perfection of true joy. So it's, uh, they're subtle things, but they take it deeper and they translate into all of us today and our lives today. Um, I was looking at a, a little cartoon uh, from the New Yorker that had God depicted as Swami Kriyananda used to make fun of always the long robe and the long white beard and he's standing and he's dipping one of those little plastic uh, things into a bubble jar and then taking it out and going, and out come worlds, <laughs> solar systems, worlds. This is God creating the world. And so, which is actually probably what some people think. I don't know. <laughs> but at any rate, um, uh, it's much harder to depict what it really is. And luckily we have Yogananda and Avatar coming and saying what the scriptures of India actually talk about. And that is that you have this vast, unmoving, completely still consciousness. Not a being, not a person, but a consciousness that 
and it answers the question of today's topic, that takes a portion of itself and sets it into vibration, into movement. Just a portion. So the rest, it's still there, but this starts in vibration. And that begins the creation. So did did God create the universe or become it? Both. He created it, but out of himself, out of his own consciousness, setting that into motion, and thereby, and it answers one of the biggest dilemmas and questions still raging today in religion, is what is God? What is the, you know, does God just, is it a mechanism? He just sets it in motion and then steps away. No, it's still part of him, but not all of him. And uh, I'm using the term him rather than saying it, but him, he, she, God is everything. And so that vibration begins to then manifest. And Yogananda said, because again, a lot of questions about how this happens, and that then God through higher beings and then lower beings and lower beings create, brought into manifestation all that we see in creation and even far beyond what we see. Now, also, interestingly enough, I was reading again in the autobiography of a yogi the chapter on the resurrection of Sri Yukteswar. And there's a lot of, it's a long chapter with a lot of pretty amazing things said in it. But I just thought, I'm just going to look toward the end. And right toward the end, the last couple of pages, Sri Yukteswar says this very interesting thing. He says that people, human beings, really are experiencing all three levels of creation during their lives, if they're aware, and even if they're not too aware. He said the physical is experienced through the senses, naturally, through seeing and touch and feel and eating and uh, hearing and all of that. He said, but then the astral is experienced, happens when you visualize and will energy. And then, so, in other words, we're tuning into these different aspects, things that we would think, because I thought most people think, well, the astral world, that's a nice idea. But no, we're actually manifesting part of it when we visualize and when we will. So using our willpower. And then he said, even the causal world is experienced when you think deeply and also when you introspect deeply and meditate deeply, then you're experiencing the causal world. So just it was just interesting to me that those things are actually happening. And, you know, for all of us, we look and we think, well, all I know is I get up every morning and I meditate and I, you know, it's the physical plane and it's not that easy. But there's much more of an interaction between these realms. And Yogananda said, and Swami Kriyananda as well, the astral world is not somewhere else. It's right here, as well as the causal world. It's more, is our awareness aware of those realms? And it, it, it is, from what Sri Yukteswar said, very interesting to read and just contemplate 
that as we live our lives, we're actually, you know, I was also reading recently an article about Microsoft and all the new things that they're coming up with and all this and interactive things. And I thought, we live in a completely interactive world. We're just not aware of it. It's called cause and effect or the law of karma. And it's always in motion. Even now with science, they know that it's no longer possible to do an experiment that is pure because the person doing the experiment always has an influence on what's happening. So in other words, it's always uh, interactive. It's always with us. So what happens for us when we start really developing this uh, relationship? Because with God, that's what happens. If God is in everything and we want to know God, then we need to be able to see God in everything. And to do that, we have to put out energy to develop a relationship. We have to love, we have to want, we have to desire that to happen. And to commune with that in meditation, to really begin to enlarge our awareness of what's really going on around us. We're sort of like fish in water. All the fish know is that there's all this water around. (laughs) And for us, we're beings of energy in a field of energy. And for those of us that are on this path, we have the energization exercises, which really start to tune us into that we are more than just a physical body. We're really made of energy. And so we can st- we start to become aware, in other words, of that fluidity and of the value of understanding that. And then the other place that my mind went with all of this was to just, so what happens then when we really begin to have that kind of a relationship? In other words, the saints. And what does that look like? What happens, uh, an example of what can happen? And uh, I happened to pick up a book that I very much enjoy, which is a biography of Padre Pio, written by a Protestant uh, minister, and very, very nicely done. But there was a... And Pranava and I, when we lived in Italy in 89 and 90, 19. Um, we were able to go down to Padre Pio's and meditate there. It's in a very remote, still remote area of Italy. It's about maybe a hundred miles east of Rome, and it's called the Gargano. It's a very um, rocky, arid, uh, poor to this day uh, area of Italy. And um, Padre Pio spent pretty much his entire adult life in a monastery in that area. He, he didn't travel. Once he went there, he didn't go out. They were more of a cloistered order, the Capuchins. And uh, uh, so he never went out, and he could see, because the way that people interacted with him was through confession. And so he heard a lot, and he knew people in the area. He was very much uh, uh, aware of what was going on. And people, it said actually in this book in the very beginning of the 1900s, which was a little before he came there, that that area of Italy 
was poorer than any area of India ever was. It was just absolutely dirt poor, dirt being the operative word there. <laughs> but uh, but at any rate, he was he he saw how people suffered and. Um, just how very poor they were, and really fed them spiritually. His his presence in that area was an incredible blessing. But all this to say that in the nineteen, I think late nineteen thirties, maybe early nineteen forties, he decided that he would build a hospital. And so, you know, here he is. He's someone who does not travel. The area is very, very poor. There were a number of people that would come to visit him, mainly from throughout Italy. Other than Italy, he really wasn't known. But what happened in the 1940s was World War II. And you would think, well, that really put a damper on building a hospital because Italy was very, um, a lot destroyed and a lot of uh, destruction just throughout the whole country. But interestingly enough, in 1943, in the middle of the war, when the Italian campaign uh, started to happen, the Germans were still not wanting to leave. And But that particular area, the Gargano, uh, the American army came in and took it over immediately. And so there was like this protection around that whole area, not just that area, but Close by, they were bombing like crazy and all of that. But it did two things. One, there was some protection there for the area. And Padre Pio, people would come during the war and ask him. And the reason I'm saying all of this is he was totally attuned to Christ. And to so he was working with God in everything he did. And uh, so people would come and ask him, well, will my hometown be saved? Will I be saved? What about my brother? And he would give varying true answers. No, your brother will die. You won't see him again. Yes, this one will be saved. Your town, Foggia, which was only 25 miles from San Giovanni Rotondo, where the monastery was, was bombed, completely destroyed. It was a big railway center. And so they had to destroy it because it was being used for bad things. Uh, but at any rate, but what it what that did was it, one, protected the area, the American army being there, and this was unusual. Didn't happen right away for the rest of Italy. And then it also brought all these Italian-American soldiers into Padre Pio's little realm there. And they met him, and the way, again, that people saw him was going to confession. Well, he only spoke Italian. And so these Italian-American young guys, army guys, would come and more and more and more came and he became extremely well-known. Well, after the war, these same men, and he would talk to them about his dreams, you know, building the hospital and all of this, came back to, these young guys came back to America, started families, and knew about Padre Pio and were still very tied in how the hospital was built after the war. Italian-Americans, that money just started pouring into that little desolate area of Italy. And that hospital, we toured it when we were there. It's beautiful. And he, and he called it the Casa uh, Solieva della Sofferenza, the house for the alleviation of suffering. And he said, and it has to be beautiful. And so marble, you know, just up, very light, 
it's the it was at the time it was finished i don't know now the best hospital in the entire area of southern italy all of southern italy and it was where everyone could come and they could get treatment and all of that but it was i just thought it's so interesting to see that divine mother arranged it so that this little one area was protected then the american italians came they knew padre pio all of this unfolded so that he could help the people of the area help the people of italy and he helped them in many other less physical ways just his presence he's the one that had the stigmata received it very early on about 1918 or something like that and all he had to do was hold his hands up and people thought yep there's a god because there was a lot of also in that time a lot of disillusionment and mental suffering of people who just thought everything is lost the war destroyed first world war 1 destroyed everything then the influenza then world war 2 so there was a lot happening and he was a presence there that really uh, protected and gave out a a spiritual blessing and especially after world war 2 as well very much a presence for that to happen so that divine you know it's nice to say wow god's everywhere and isn't that wonderful but it's a very deep connection that we start to develop with that divine as we act on that as we draw that presence as we see it everywhere we actively want to see it everywhere as we see the things in our lives connected to that you know i and just personally i had a um a thing happen number of things have happened of course in the early days of ananda there were quite a number of miracles that allowed us to uh, build the community associated with individuals specifically but i remember around 2001 um uh nivriti and i from seattle portland flew down to attend a janaka meeting one of the first ones we had and it was i can't remember what time of year but Catherine uh, picked us up at the airport and we were driving back when we realized it was starting to snow heavily and the snow level dropped and dropped and so we were heading up toward Auburn thinking ooh wow but we hit Auburn and you know there was snow on the ground but we just turned on 49 and we shot on through and then and it was dark it was nighttime and uh nobody stopped us but the highway was actually closed <laughs> yeah and it was snowing and you know when you get in those situations you realize you're traveling on highway 49 out of auburn and there's cars along the side of the road but nobody's in them and there's no one else on the road and it's not easy to turn around and go back either you know it's very so we just thought Nivriti Catherine and I just formed this little kind of a bubble. Om om om. Go Catherine, go. You can do it. And we just kept going and it was like, wow, are we really going to make this or are we going to get off into a ditch with nobody around? But we just kept going and I could feel again because all three of us really were in it 
that that was holding us. And I said, don't look. Don't look around. Just keep going and don't stop. <laughs> you know, if you stop, you're dead because of the hills. So anyway, but we made it all the way to Grass Valley and then someone was there to meet us and, and take us uh, on further who had um, a better vehicle for doing that. But you just find that that divine presence because it's both outside of creation but very much part of creation. And so it's at work for us as we draw on it, as we call on it, as we look to it for our support and our sustenance. So let's uh, end this uh, talk by, I'd like to read again. So sit up and close your eyes, and I'd just like to read again that beautiful passage from the Bhagavad Gita. And try to visualize it as I read that this is the actual reality of God's presence in the universe. I am the fluidity of water. I am the silver light of the moon and the golden light of the sun. I am the Om chanted in all the Vedas, the cosmic sound moving as if soundlessly through the ether. I am the manliness of men. I am the good sweet smell of the moist earth. I am the luminescence of fire, the sustaining life of all living creatures. I am self-offering in those who would expand their little lives into cosmic life. O Arjuna, know me as the eternal seed of all creatures. In the perceptive, I am their perception. In the great, I am their greatness. In the glorious, it is I who am their glory. This is-